Good to see everybody today. I'm so excited to be with you on this Lord's Day to celebrate not only the Lord's Supper, but just um, everything that the Lord is doing in our church, in our lives, and uh, so much of already what our service has contained has been a very deep encouragement to me and, and a reminder to me of several things and really a couple prayer requests for our church on, for, on my behalf. Um, please pray for uh, the project that I'm working on, uh, the book that I've been working on for quite a while now. It's almost there at the tipping point, meaning it's ready to go to publishing, but I've just got a few more things uh, to work on. And as Pastor Chris was up here talking to us about the Lord's Supper and how that points us to Christ and ultimately to the cross, I thought, well, I, I wonder if he's been sneaking into my documents on my laptop because I have a chapter specifically on that, how the ordinances point us to the cross. And uh, so that just uh, reminded me to ask for prayer and uh, be, please be praying for that. Uh, the book is called Crucified. Uh, the soul of the gospel, and just pray that the Lord really puts his blessing on that. And uh, also, uh, a reminder to you to pray. I have a couple of trips coming up in the next next couple weeks, not this week, coming up the following week. I'll be uh, flying out to Virginia. I'll be working on a project with Paul Washer. I know you guys know who Paul Washer is, uh, many of you anyway. Uh, just pray for our time together. We're working on a evangelistic resource, and so just ask you to please be mindful of that. I covet your prayers that the Lord really directs us and guides us. And then the following week after that, I'll be out in Phoenix uh, basically doing the same thing with James White. So just be in prayer for both of those men, myself, this, um, also Ryan Hawley. You guys, many of you know Ryan Hawley uh, used to be a member of our church, moved out to Alabama, still does a lot of things with us through media. And just pray that God really puts his hand a blessing on him, uh, really as kind of the producer of this project, and uh, just that the Lord leads us and guides us. Our whole passion behind this whole thing is uh, to create a, a resource, an evangelism resource for the lost. And really what gave birth to it was college, career, age kind of students. Um, I just have a real passion for college-type students. Uh, as you know, I do a lot of evangelism at uh, University of North Texas through open-air preaching and witnessing and all of that, and the Lord has been really mightily blessing on the campus of North Texas. Uh, last week, we had a student here, in fact, in our church that came from the school uh, to do sort of an interview uh, with me about evangelism, but many, many people on that campus have been affected through our evangelism, and several have been converted. And so please uh, pray for the students uh, on a very, very liberal campus. If you know anything about UNT, it is not a conservative place. Uh, but God is using our efforts there, and I just really covet your ongoing prayers, okay? Let's pray one more time. Let's do that very thing as we go to the Word now. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now, and we are grateful uh, for the time that we have as we meet together as a congregation, as we gather in your name and over your word, Lord, we ask your blessing now to come, fill our hearts, fill our minds, give us illumination, Lord, fill us with understanding, and ultimately, Lord, I pray that everything we say and do here, all the learning, all of the lessons, all of the theology, and all of the exegesis, and all of the exposition would be for a central purpose, and that is for us to see more of the glory and the beauty and the excellency of Christ. We pray that he would be supreme 
and preeminent in this place, that we would tap into uh, the Bible's Christocentric spirit, Lord, that we would tap into all of the glories and all of the beauties of Christ as is set in front of us here uh, in the book of Hebrews, in this passage, and in the entirety of your word. We just ask, Lord, that you would help us. Encourage our hearts. I know that in any church service, there is a service full of people coming from different places, uh, different hearts, different state of minds, uh, different frames in their hearts and their lives, Lord, different circumstances that have arisen throughout the week. And I pray, God, that you would be the encouragement of every heart, that you would use your word prophetically into the lives of your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. We've read the text before us, and I was reminded again as we're reading this text of the fact that we are, what we're studying here is what is known as the cultus of Israel. That is to say, we are looking into the nuts and bolts of the, of the religious system of Israel, well, really the sacrificial system of Israel. And I thought, you know, we would be tempted if we didn't have the mind of Christ to feel so out of touch with what the text is talking about. I mean, the fact that we're talking about an inner tabernacle, an outer tabernacle, the blood, the high priest, the offerings. Uh, We're talking about a holy place. Last week, we looked at the tabernacle in terms of its furnishings in the holy place and then in the most holy place, the holy of all. And I thought, you know, we really could if we did not have the mind of Christ, and if we were not intentional about it, we really could feel so out of touch with what the book of Hebrews is all about. After all, we have no altars, we have no offerings, we have no lavers, there is no uh, candlestick in this church, there is no, none of those duties, those what he calls the divine uh, uh, regulations of worship. But you know, there's a reason why we are not out of touch with these things, and that is because we are in touch with Christ. And if we are in touch with Christ, then all of these things have fresh relevance. Relevance for the modern man, relevance for the technological man, relevance for the fast-paced man in this fast-paced society that slows us down as we remember that what we are approaching here is the mystery of the holy. Thinking of verse 8 in particular, as you look there, it says the Holy Spirit is signifying by this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. It has not yet been disclosed. So, in order to disclose that to us, to bring greater illumination, and that's one of the things I love about the Christian life, do you not agree with me, is the, 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 the element of growth. The fact that God, through his word and through his spirit, uh, grants us greater and greater illumination as we go on and on and on in our Christian journey. I know for me, it's always such a great delight when a fresh insight is given to me in the Word of God. I hope that you look at the Word of God that way. 
You know how it is. You thought you knew all there was to know about a certain subject, a certain topic, a certain passage, and then through a study or through a new book or through a sermon or through some devotion of your own, a fresh connection is made and the revelation of God just comes alive in a new way that you had not seen before. And I pray that your life is full of moments like that. How do you have moments like that? Assiduous meditation on the Word of God and studying good books. That's how you're going to do it. Good, good books. Well, the author of Hebrews is giving us fresh insight now into the holy place from a Christocentric perspective. By the way, talking about good books, I read a phrase by J.I. Packer. It's in the book that recently came out on the atonement. I don't know if some of you may have saw that, but it's a book by, um, oh, who, who's, it's a, a, major, uh, uh, a whole collection of contributors. I think Gibson, David Gibson is one of the main editors. But in that book, uh, J.I. Packer used such an interesting phrase that I had not heard before. But he talked about the fact that the Reformed faith is rooted and grounded in what he called Trinitarian Christocentrism. Now, now that's a big fancy word that people might use to try to impress you. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to harness something, the spirit of what is said there by Packer. That is to say, and I would add only one word to that phrase, biblical Trinitarian Christocentrism. And the distinction is slight but important because I know that what Packer is not saying is that ontologically, meaning in the being of God, in the essence of God, in the what of God, Christ is not supreme. We believe in a triune God where each member of the Godhead is equal, co-eternal, right? Um, All of the attributes that relate to any member of the Trinity relates to all the others, but biblically, That's what's important, is that as we consider the unfolding of divine revelation, we cannot help but to think of the Trinitarian Christocentrism of the Bible. That is to say that from beginning to end, the the Bible is a Trinitarian book that is centered around making much of Christ magnifying Christ, exalting Christ, driving us to Christ. The book of Hebrews not only is not an exception to that, but the book of Hebrews particularly excels in that and showing us how all these things in the prior revelation, Old Covenant, Old Testament, was all pointing us to Christ. And that's exactly what's going on here. Take, for instance, the context of this paragraph, this uh, passage here, verses 6 through 10, this pericope. What the author is doing is he's taking us from the furniture to the duties of the priest. So that's why he begins in verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared. And so he first had to settle the the, 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 the typological nature of the furnishings of the old uh, covenant tabernacle and then, of course, the temple. But the sanctuary, the instruments, the, the furniture, the furnishings, the design of it and what connection we made to that in Christ. But now he moves from the furnishings into the priesthood, the priest that operated in the tent, 
in the tabernacle with the furnishings. He says, okay, now these things have been prepared, he says, so that the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but, and this is, I think, his main emphasis, his main emphasis is the second tabernacle, which is another way of speaking of the holy of holies. You have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies, and that's where he wants to focus. Because beyond the second veil, you enter into the invisible realm of the presence of God as the symbolism goes. He says, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And that idea of the sins of the people committed in ignorance just simply means this is the extent of the atonement that needs to be made on behalf of the people. We know the sins that are committed out of intent, intentional sins, but even the sins of ignorance must be atoned for. It's just like us. Even the sins you did not even know you committed in your life, Christ atoned for those sins because the pollution even of the sins of ignorance was so corrupt, so polluted, so soiled in the presence of a holy God that your sins of ignorance are enough to damn you for an eternity in hell. You need an atonement that's going to take away all of your sin. So this is very much pointing us to the, the, the supremacy of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And two things I think are implied here. Number one, the absolute necessity of the blood of Christ. The absolute necessity of the blood of Christ. And number two, the absolute sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Now, the necessity the necessity. I see that right here in verse 7 when he says, but into the second, the high priest enters once a year, and then this slight qualification is made, not without taking blood. Literally, the Greek just says, not without blood. In other words, the priest can't forget to get blood before he goes in. He, he has to make that qualification that the whole purpose of the priest going through the veil was blood work. And we made much of that last week as we looked at the symbolism of what it meant to go through the veil, the mercy seat, and what that represented as God is, is above the cherubim, and he's speaking there, and the, 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 the priest walks in with blood and with incense, and the glory cloud develops, and, and God looks down upon his Ark of the Covenant, and he sees his broken law, and he sees the sins of Israel, but ultimately, because blood is spilled on the mercy seat, he sees ultimately Christ. And the only reason why you and I will ever, ever be accepted in the sight of God. That's going to be important here in a second. Number one, the absolute necessity of the blood of Christ. Jesus could not return to heaven without his blood. And he talks about it in John chapter 17. If you turn there with me for a second. In John chapter 17... An important 
verse because this passage is all about what theologians call the covenant of redemption, where Jesus literally has accomplished. And what's going on here in Acts 17 is relevant to to Hebrews because this is classically known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Jesus as a high priest in intercession before the Father on behalf of his people. And what is he talking about but his return to his pre-existent state of glory? And this is what he says, 17 verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. That is referring to the cross. Jesus knew that the path to glory was through the suffering or the passion of the cross. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you. I believe that is speaking of covenant language. Those are covenant overtones there. Know you in covenant in a covenant communion bond. It's glorious. He says, he says that they may know you, the, true, the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And now look at how he speaks about the cross. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. As D.A. Carson pointed out in his commentary, it's as if Jesus is looking at the cross as a completed past tense action. It is so certain. There is nothing that is going to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He speaks of it as a completed action in the past tense. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was In order for Jesus to return to the state of intertrinitarian glory, he must take blood. He must be glorified. He must suffer. It is this this blood that is of absolute necessity. He cannot enter, just like the earthly priest could not enter into the second tabernacle without taking blood. So Christ cannot enter into the greater tabernacle, as Hebrews says, the true tabernacle, into heaven itself, as Hebrews 9 declares, without taking his blood. It points us to the very necessity of this blood to redeem us. You know, Peter, if you turn to 1 Peter with me, 1 Peter chapter 1 basically is a summary, we could say, of the theology of Hebrews. You say, well, so many sermons. Pastor Miller, you've been confusing me because you've been here for weeks and weeks and months and months, and dare I say you'll be here for years and years. (laughs) It's okay. I wear that like a badge of honor. uh, Peter sort of summarizes for us like a mini commentary. What is the essence of Hebrews? I would say 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 is a good commentary on that question. This is what the Reformers called the analogy of the faith, the analogia fide, that is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture proves Scripture. What is the best tool that you will ever own as a Bible study student? A cross-reference tool. A tool like the treasury of Scripture knowledge that all, the only purpose of that tool is to, sh- is to point you to a relevant passage th- than the passage that you're on. And all you do is just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 
And you should do that. Just take an evening and just do that. It's glorious. This is an example of that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Uh, just even as a parallel, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, the idea of walking as strangers and aliens in this world. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from, the, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ And what does that remind you of? Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. When the author says it is fitting for us to have that high priest who is holy and innocent and undefiled and separate from sinners and exalted in the heavens. Same idea. He says, for he was foreknown of the foundation of the world but has appeared in these, watch this, these last times for, this, for, for the sake of you. And what does that refer, uh, remind you of? But rather than Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says that God from long ago spoke in, in many ways, in many portions, through the, to the, through the prophets, to the fathers, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things. Same idea. Verse 21, who through him, you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. What does that remind you of? But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, where it says that, or verse 9, where it talks about Jesus, after he suffered, he was given glory and honor, right? What's the purpose? So that your faith and your hope are in God. See, it is the blood of Christ that gives you hope. What gives you hope? The blood of Jesus. Now, this becomes important. So, not only is the blood of Jesus absolutely necessary, but it is also absolutely sufficient. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter uh, 7 again, and just, just to provide this insight, as Hebrews is telling us that um, Jesus comes in contrast to the priests. So how do we go from the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, particularly 7, where it says that he takes blood and he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. Now we know Jesus was not dying for his own sin. He has no sin. Look at uh, Hebrews 7, 26. It is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted in the heaven, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Perfect parallel passage. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So, It is pointing us to the all-sufficient nature of the atonement. That Jesus, number one, being sinless, is able to provide the sacrifice that we need. Number two, because, not only because he is sinless, but also because he did it as a once-for-all sacrifice. There is no need to repeat it. And so that 
is critical when you think of this phrase where he says, uh, back if you just back up um, even here in verse 6, the, outer, the priest in the outer tabernacle are doing what? Continually entering. Verse 7, the high priest goes in once a year, once a year, once a year. But you see, Jesus didn't do this once a year. He did it once for all. Which means, as I pointed out before, this phrase, once for all, literally means a one-time event that cannot be repeated. I like that. That is what the cross is. It is a one-time event that cannot be repeated. What did the Day of Atonement point to? Because that's what it's pointing to. What did the Day of Atonement point to? It pointed us to the fact that we need a greater Day of Atonement. We need not just the regular priestly duties. We need a unique offering. We need an offering unlike all other offerings. We need a transcendental offering that transcends all other priests and that accomplishes a unique atonement for sin. That is what the Day of Atonement was pointing us to. And boy, you want to talk about a unique atoning work, Christ. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Because... A perfect atonement is also what we could call a consummate atonement. A consummate atonement. All other atonements are sub-eschatological. In other words, they fail to reach God's consummate purposes, but not the atoning work of Christ. Look at this, Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter into the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And that is the vicarious nature of the atonement, meaning he did it as our substitute. He stood in our stead. He stood in our place for us. Boy, the whole theology of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is contained in that little phrase, for us. For us. That's our life right there, folks. I hope you don't miss that. That's our life. For us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. You see that? Not often. As great as the day of atonement was, he still had to do it every year, which is a form of often. As the high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, otherwise he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. Now watch this. But now, that's new covenant emphasis there. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, circle it, underline it, highlight it, make a mental note for those of you that are or, or have that photographic capability, <laughs> make that mental note in your mind, now at the consummation of the ages. You might think, wait a minute, but this was written 2,000 years ago. The ages haven't consummated yet. Have they? The inauguration of the consummation of the ages began when Jesus Christ came. Right? Why did Jesus say, that the time is at hand, right? The kingdom of God is, is at hand. The, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. All of these 
types of phrases that point us to the inevitable conclusion that by the coming of Jesus, that ushered in the consummation of the ages. In other words, my dear friends, there is no future redemptive age left. The only thing that's left is for him to come, to come in consummate glory. But his atonement is a consummate atonement. It, it, it happens at the consummation of the ages. He, was, he has been manifested for this purpose, to put away sin by the sacrifice, we could say the once for all sacrifice of himself. Now, let us assume that we all do a good job in sharing our faith, sharing the gospel. Somebody told me once, I don't like that phrase, sharing my faith. I can't share my faith with anybody. Okay. Sharing the gospel, that's better, right? Preaching the gospel, witnessing to our neighbors. What this reminded me of is this. Our gospel has to contain this. If we don't have this in our gospel, what that means is that we can begin to redefine what is man's real need and what has God really provided for that need? What is God's real remedy? You see, if we don't make this about the blood work of Christ, then we may be tempted with the liberals to think that what man simply needs is a reorientation of environment. What he simply needs is a psychological, sort of psychological help. What he needs is a hug. We got people at UNT, while I'm preaching, they got signs saying, free hugs. They got the real remedy over there. People don't need a hug. People need the blood. It's not, we cannot allow ourselves to let, let the, the, the felt needs of the world around us dictate to us what they really need. You see, because you can look around the world today and you can acknowledge with everybody else the world is in need of a lot of things. Global chaos, pandemic, epidemics, the world needs global peace, medical cure, medical breakthroughs, emotional healing, justice, love, mercy ministry, humanitarian aid. There's no question about it. The world needs these things. But there is one thing that the world needs above all of these things that only the blood of Jesus can remedy, and that is their sin. The stain of their sin, the crimson of their sin will only be washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. So then the blood becomes the remedy. We do not remedy people's problems with anything other than the blood. We point them ultimately to the cross. Man's need demands that we preach the cross. Fly to the cross. I've had people ask me while I'm engaged in witnessing or open-air preaching, what do I need? What do I need to do? You know what I tell them? Fling yourself to the cross. Cast yourself down on the mercy of God that he would be merciful to you. That's the place of genuine repentance, genuine conversion, genuine faith. Save them with the blood and the blood will keep them. You save them with 
felt needs, psychology, psychobabble, pop psychology, whatever you want to call it. Save them with all these consumer techniques that the church is engaged in today, these marketing strategies to tell you that what you really need is a rock climbing wall outside the walls of the church. What you really need is an Xbox for the youth group in the back. What you really need is a... No. Because then what you got to do is you got to forget the Xbox. Now we need an arcade for the church because it's just not enough. Consumers get bored. But when you show them that there is one all-sufficient product, the blood of Jesus, it has a lifetime eternal warranty. Money back, well, you're not going to get your money back because you don't ever take it back. Satisfaction guaranteed only in the blood of Jesus. Now, let's move on from this atonement theme to what is the Spirit saying here? Because again, verse 8 is such a central verse, is it not? The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That's an amazing statement to me. That's an amazing statement. You take the cultus of Israel, all of the furnishings, the tabernacle, the curtains, the priesthood, the altar, the sacrifices. And you know what the author of Hebrews says? The Spirit is talking. That's what he's saying. The Spirit is pointing us somewhere. The Spirit is trying to communicate with us. That's an, that's an amazing connection, is it not? That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. Now, let's pause there to just consider briefly, what does the Spirit do? John chapter 16, verse 12, is an excellent place for us to see that the Spirit not only had a prophetic function in the old covenant as he spoke of the coming of Christ and of the redemption of Christ and all of those things but the spirit was always to glorify Christ look at John 16 12 or I can read it to you it says I have more things to say to you but you cannot bear them now speaking to his disciples he says but he that is the spirit of truth when he comes he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. As a matter of fact, that phrase is also connected to Christ. Christ did not speak on his own initiative. He did the will of the Father. So what we have here is Trinitarian theology all over the place. But he's saying the Spirit is not going to speak on his own. He is not detached from the work of Christ, in other words. But whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you, same idea as Hebrews 9, He will disclose to you what is to come. And, and He says, He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine, and He will disclose it to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit will continue the mission of Christ on earth by speaking the same doctrine, revealing the same truth, more truth, more insight for His people. Now, the Spirit has had a long legacy of doing this. Look at uh, 1 Peter with me. Now, you know we got to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, because pneumatology, which is the study of the Spirit, is very important in connection to the redeeming work of Christ. Where does the Spirit come in in the redemption of Christ? He's always been there. He's always been working. The, the New Testament is not where the Spirit begins to be Christ-centered. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 10. It says this, because back then he even had an evangelical role. 
He says, to this salvation, after Peter says, we have a common salvation. He says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, now watch this, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now watch this because this is in keeping with the theology in Hebrews. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. In other words, just like Hebrews, Peter is saying, Long ago, the Spirit is speaking of something that is coming. He is speaking of the new covenant, in other words. That's the connection here. He is speaking, as we'll see, of a time of reformation. That's what the Spirit was doing. When the Spirit was enabling, empowering, and filling His people under the old covenant to do all the things that they were doing under the old covenant, under the types and the shadows, empowering the priests, enabling the priests, speaking to the priests, speaking through the prophets, all of that was for one reason. And it was to show us that a greater access is coming. That there is a way that will be opened up to us, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, a new and living way. See, he can speak of a new and living way now because the old way... The old order, the old priesthood, the old sacrifices are dead. They have been rendered obsolete. They can be set aside. He says they were ultimately going to disappear. That's all eschatological language. I know that's a big word, eschatological. But if you just practice, I bet you get good at it. And it just becomes part of your conversation, okay? It's all eschatological language pointing us forward to the consummate atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is what the Spirit is doing. And the Spirit has been at work in the life of Jesus from beginning to end, from His birth, overshadowing Him, keeping Him, protecting Him, making sure that no human pollution would come in to the bloodstream of the Son of God overshadowing the conception process so that what you had in Christ was sinless from birth and then empowering him, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, filling him as the messianic servant of God, empowering him in the spirit of the Lord to come with power and might. The spirit's whole purpose in the gospels is to confirm Jesus as Messiah. Why do you think when people saw Jesus by the Spirit performing undeniable miracles. And when those people, reprobate and hardened in their heart as they were, said when they saw that, Satan. Why do you think Jesus said that act of blasphemy will never be forgiven. There is no greater sign that Jesus is who he said he is than that he comes in the Spirit of God, performing miracles by the Holy Spirit, and then you attribute that to the spirit of Satan. Can you think of anything more diabolical? 
than that. I know you guys are all going to flood me with blasphemy of the Spirit questions after this sermon. That's okay. I did it to myself. Feel free. The earthly tabernacle was, again, less than the eschatological tabernacle of heaven. Look back again to chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, and when he says there, the way into the holy place, there is a double entendre there that is intended. In other words, he is using the old covenant typology of the literal holy of holies covered in a physical tent, and he's saying that the way into the ultimate holy place has not yet been disclosed. Not the one made with hands, not the one of this creation, the true one into heaven itself, into the very presence of God itself. He says, it has not yet been disclosed. Until what? As long as the outer tabernacle is still standing. And then look at verse 9. It is a symbol of the present time. For the present time. So what the erection of the earthly tabernacle represented was a, listen now, listen now, don't lose me now. It is a sub-eschatological state of affairs. In other words, things have not yet reached their ultimate intended goal. Right? Now that's the complicated way of saying it. The easy way to say it is just this. That there's a greater tabernacle coming. And there's going to be another veil that we're going to go through. And it's going to let us into the presence of God. But it's not the tabernacle that was built on earth. It is a greater tabernacle, one that is not made with hands. It is heaven itself, and that is what the Spirit himself was pointing us to. What's the result? Two results. Look at verse 9. Two results. He says, accordingly, that is, according to the old order, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. See, the sacrifices of the old sacrificial system, because they were sub-eschatological, they could not produce eschatological fruit. What's eschatological fruit? Justification. Sanctification. And ultimately, glorification. The old blood could not produce a truly eschatological state of affairs. So as long as that old tent is standing, the Spirit is saying the new way, the new path into the Holy of Holies has not yet been revealed. But it's been revealed to us. This is as simple as telling someone, listen, God has made it clear. Your only hope, my friend, is Jesus. It is Jesus. The old tent is gone. The old temple, gone. Just go to Israel. You'll see the temple is gone. And they will rebuild it only, I think, at great peril. <laughs> so, the Spirit is pointing us to two results. Permanent internal renewal. 
No matter how many times the priests went in, no matter how many times they were continually, daily doing the sacrifices in the general court of the tabernacle in the holy place, and then once a year, the high priest doing one thing once a year for the people of God, and that is going into the holy of holies. No matter how many times that, pro- how many times that process was cycled, no matter how many times they repeated that process, it ultimately showed us that it was ultimately ineffective. It was ineffective to do what God wanted more than anything. Psalm 51, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 because this idea of the inferiority of the old covenant sacrificial system has a redemptive historical fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the prototypical psalmist. It is not ultimately David that understood this. It is Christ that fully fulfilled this and applied this to himself. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired. A body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And look at this. Then I said, behold, I come In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Wow. What happened there is that Jesus is setting before us the type of communion, the type of religious life that God is pleased with. And it is not that you make all of these great religious external appearances of righteousness. I talked to a Muslim once who was a former Muslim, and he talked about the fact that the Muslims, you know, they're dead in their religion. And so one of the things that they do when they go into the mosque, and I've seen them in the mosque, I've seen them go to the mosque, and they'll stay in there all day and pray. And and, and he was telling me that one of the things they do is that when they bow down and pray to Mecca, and they're laying on their rugs, they're pushing their forehead into the rug. So then they when, when they get up and they get out and they go outside of the mosque, people will see that they've been praying for a long time. That's what the Bible means by dead religion. Dead religion. It is only through a free will offering to God. It is only through the fact that our wills, having been liberated by the power of a sovereign God, now worship Him freely and say, Oh God, like Christ, I want to do Your will. And that's exactly what He just got done teaching us in chapter 8. He puts his laws into our minds. He writes, he writes his law into our heart. And I will be their God and they will be my people. See, the new covenant is this. You don't need an external religious regulative principle to regulate your life. You know what happens here? Is that what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Everyday life is no longer governed by Torah. Everyday life is no longer governed by the, by the regulations of the Old Covenant. You know what it's governed by, my dear friends? It is governed by the principle of a new creation. Turn with me to Hebrew, uh, Philippians chapter, um, 
excuse me, Galatians chapter six. This just came to mind. That's why it's risky, but it's important. (laughs) Galatians chapter six, beginning in verse 14, you know what's going on here. The pressure of Judaizers trying to get Christians to conform to the old covenant rituals, sacrifices, circumcision, signs. And he says, may it never be, verse 14, that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, watch this, but a new creation. Are you a new creature? Then you don't need a Pharisee to follow you around and ask you, brother, have you been reading your Bible this week? Have you been doing devotions? Show me. Open up your journal. Have you been attending the the assembly of of, of the local church? Have you been faithful? Let's inspect your fruit. Have you been giving to the local church? Open up your checkbook. We need to see and verify. No, we don't need a personal Pharisee following us around because we have the Spirit of God and the principle of a new creation that rules our heart. Everything has changed under the new covenant. Think about how life-altering. You want to talk about a worldview shift for a Jew. All he has known is the smell of the tabernacle, the scent of the temple, and the sacrificial systems. All he has known is the courts and the the fact. Be a Jewish woman, and there's a line that you can't cross. There's an outer court, a women's court. You You can't go and approach that part of the temple. The Spirit is signifying that for all of God's people, the way into the holy place has been opened through Christ. That's what it is. No more of those types of categories in terms of our access to the presence of God. Therefore, it also resulted in the removal of temporary external regulations. Now we live by the principle of a new creation, of a new heart, where we say with Jesus, Lord, I long to do your will. Nobody's got to force you. Nobody's got to beat you over the head about that. Because that is what Galatians calls faith working through love. That's the principle. Next week, we'll see much more of that. Let's pray, and uh, we will close in a song together. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the glorious access that we have into the holy place, into the holiest place of all, which is your presence, where we may freely approach the throne of grace, not on our, our merit, not because of anything we have done, but because of the infinite merit of your son, Jesus. Lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and he has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And now your spirit is telling us a new and living way is open. Help us, Lord. The simple words of the book of Hebrews help us by faith to draw near, full assurance, no doubting, no wavering. Oh, God.
Grant us that faith. In Jesus' name, amen.